I've been in the Senate for over a quarter of a century, and the key is to get something passed that puts us on the right foot and we're able to deal with the problem that's happening. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Well, that would be nice. I got the feeling that something right. Although, in 25 years, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. She hasn't gotten and anything passed. Just saying. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM. All across LA and in Byron's. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. On the central coast of Oregon on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene, Oregon's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington on KODX, we'll be talking about you, Seattle, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also uh, stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, boy, oh boy, what a week it has been. Uh, but Desi Doyen, some yes. some good news for you. Okay. I'm sorry, I should say some news for you. <laughs> well, there's uh, so much of it. I'll just, I guess. As, as of this weekend, we will be exactly one year from Super Tuesday 2020. Aren't you excited? Oh yeah! Come on, no, well, so- show some <laughs> show some team spirit there, Des. <laughs> that could be our way out of this mess. Well, that is true. You make Just, an excellent point. Thank you. Uh, also, the first in the nation, Iowa caucuses and New Hampshire primary. They are now less than one year away. Yikes. And what I know you're most excited about is the first presidential primary debates begin. In June Mm. of this year. Ow, way to ruin the summer. (laughs) Three months from now. (laughs) Cheer up there. Man, are you a... A Debbie Downer. Debbie Downer, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, those primary debates are going to be very crowded, and as of today, they are uh, getting crowded-er. Washington Governor Jay Inslee announced on Friday morning that he will... In fact, seek the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination with a focus on combating climate change. So that should cheer you up, Des. That does, Okay, there you go. You're welcome. Uh, Along with uh, a highlight on his aggressive critique of Donald Trump over the past couple of years, the 68-year-old governor is launching his bid in Seattle. Oh, hello, KODX 96.9 in Seattle. 
That uh, following uh, recent visits to the primary states of New Hampshire and the early caucus state of Nevada. Before his live public announcement on Friday, he released a video announcement of his plan to seek the nomination, highlighting, well, a montage showing him going from black hair to full white hair, right? <laughs> yes. Over the past 20 years or so, as uh, he says he's focused on climate change over those past 20 years. Hi, Governor. What do you have to say about climate change? A lot. We have got to stop global warming. Everyone in this country knows climate is changing. Reduce carbon pollution. New energy future. Climate change. Climate change. We should be dealing with climate change. Climate change. Climate change. We need to defeat climate change. That's what I believe. We're the first generation to feel the sting of climate change, and we're the last that can do something about it. We went to the moon and created technologies that have changed the world. Our country's next mission must be to rise up to the most urgent challenge of our time, defeating climate change. This crisis isn't just a chart or graph anymore. The impacts are being felt everywhere. We have an opportunity to transform our economy, run on 100% clean energy that will bring millions of good-paying jobs to every community across America, create a more just future for everyone. I'm Jay Inslee, and I'm running for president because I'm the only candidate who will make defeating climate change our nation's number one priority. We can do this. Join our movement. This is our moment. That was uh, Jay Inslee, his announcement video today uh, that he's getting into the race for president, Washington state governor. He is the first governor to join an already very crowded Democratic primary field. Uh, mostly dominated at this point by U.S. senators so far. Uh, there are some other governors thinking of getting in. Montana Governor Steve Bullock, uh, two-term Democratic governor in Montana, a state where uh, Donald Trump won by some 20 points. There's also former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. He's thinking about getting in. They would face for a start at least six prominent senators, including Cory Booker of New Jersey, Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, Kamala Harris of California, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, Bernie Sanders of Vermont, and Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Those are just the folks who are already running. Former Vice President Joe Biden may get in. Texas uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke are also expected to make announcements in the coming weeks. Inslee acknowledges his underdog status. However, in a recent interview with Associated Press, uh, he says his emphasis on combating climate change will set him apart. Inslee told AP that climate change is a unifying issue, and he called it a moral necessity and an economic opportunity. Well, he is certainly correct on the moral necessity and economic opportunity part there, Des. Oh, yes, definitely. Um, as far as unifying, however... Uh, well, the various elements of the recently released Green New Deal resolution proposed by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey, those are, in fact, wildly popular. More than 80 uh, percent across all political parties, according to recent polling, and, and most uh, support the Green New Deal's elements, and most of the already declared Democratic candidates have endorsed it as well. But the resolution, the Green New Deal, calling for 100 percent carbon neutral power in the U.S. by 2030, along with millions of jobs to support that effort and the cleanup of legacy pollution and much more. 
That is not necessarily unifying among all the elected Democratic officials in Washington, D.C. In fact, you may have seen a video, most uh, most likely an edited one, of California's Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein recently speaking down to children uh, that came to her office to ask for support on the Green New Deal, only to hear her tell them that she has her own version of a Green New Deal and that the AOC and uh, Markey plans, unlike her own, couldn't get the support needed to pass, didn't have a way to pay for itself, and that unlike the children asking her to vote for the Green New Deal... A non-binding resolution, by the way. Correct. That uh, she, not these children, knew what she was doing. Uh, we will talk a bit about her and the uh, potentially emerging divide among Democrats over the Green New Deal with Emily Atkin of the New Republic. She'll join us shortly. She's been writing about exactly that and taking a bit of fire for it. <laughs> I will say. So uh, we will put on our toxic flame retardant pajamas and head into that fray here a bit shortly. For Inslee's part, uh, he promises substantial investment in clean energy sources to reduce American dependent on fossil fuels and says that this issue is connected to virtually every other value system and thing that we want to do in our communities. Though he has not specifically endorsed the Green New Deal himself, uh, instead he advocates for a more piecemeal approach that he describes as ambitious but attainable while avoiding a promise for specific reductions of carbon emissions under an absolute time frame. Uh, what do you think of that, Des? A uh, more piecemeal, piecemeal approach rather than this broad effort? Well, I think the difference between what Inslee is proposing and what the Green New Deal says, the Green New Deal really is a framework for developing that legislation. And what Inslee has done is differentiate himself indeed from the other Democratic candidates in the field. But he's also proposing some specific policy legislations, and then those can be put through the ringer and examined to see whether they actually meet the the speed and scope that scientists say is necessary. That's what I'm concerned about, the speed and scope. I don't know if piecemeal cuts it anymore. But it anyway, doesn't we'll, really, but it gets the conversation started. We will uh, get the conversation started with Emily Atkins uh, momentarily and get her thoughts on Inslee as well. But uh, first, we spent some time on our previous broadcast discussing how Republicans seem to uh, actually have no actual defense for the president of the United States in response to his former lawyer and fixer Michael Cohn's remarkable testimony in the U.S. House Oversight Committee this past Wednesday when he laid out uh, details with hard evidence in support of several cases, at least five felony crimes, at least, that Trump appears to have committed. If Cohen is telling the truth, the uh, GOP defense of the president since then, actually during the hearing and since then, uh, has so far pretty much consisted of trying to tar Cohen as a liar. Oh, he's lying. Don't believe a word he says. Forget all of those felonies that he's documenting here. Now, he's already admitted to being a liar, to actually lying to Congress in his initial testimony that was on behalf of Trump himself. He told lies. He says that Trump wanted him to tell. That's part of what Cohn pleaded guilty to uh, to federal prosecutors and that he will begin serving a three-year sentence for 
starting, I think, in May. So call him a liar if you want, but he has documents and he has federal prosecutors who would not simply take his word for it anyway uh, as they pursue some of these allegations against Trump as made by Cohen. So the defense of the president regarding stuff like uh, evidence that he defrauded banks and insurance companies, which Trump's campaign chair, Paul Manafort, is already in prison for, uh, or that he participated in a campaign finance felony conspiracy by making hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and then covering up that payment essentially with checks written to Michael Cohen by Trump himself after after he became president, which, along with lying to Congress and, and some of the other stuff, Cohen is also himself going to jail for. So the defense uh, to those allegations has been almost non-existent in the days since Cohen's stunning public testimony. But to be fair, there has been some emerging defenses uh, beyond calling Cohen a liar. Uh, over the past few hours, uh, Lindsey Graham, who once called Trump a kook and completely unfit for office, has now become one of his top defenders for some reason. And uh, today he claimed that those checks signed by Donald Trump in the White House since taking office for $35,000 a piece for about a year to Michael Cohen uh, said to have been to pay Michael Cohen back for the $130,000 personal home loan that he took out in order to pay that hush money to a, a porn star just before the election to keep her quiet about the tryst that she had with Trump. Graham says that that is was actually not, I guess, uh, to pay Cohen back to cover up a, a, a crime, a campaign finance crime. Uh, here's here's Graham today. The Stormy Daniels payments and the check that Michael Cohen brought yesterday to the committee hearing. Do you have any concerns that the sitting president committed a crime in a campaign um, finance violation? Well, number one, uh, you, I think the campaign finance law is that, that the only reason you would do this would be to avoid, a, you know, to help your campaign. If there's another reason, like protecting your family or your wife. I mean, I think Trump has done this in the past, but I found that most people don't write checks if they think they're involved in a crime, you know. Here's my part of the crime. So <laughs> good luck with that one. I, we'll, we'll see what the Southern District in New York does. But generally speaking, people don't write checks if they think they're committing a crime. Is he really arguing that ignorance of the law is an excuse? I'm not sure what he's arguing, uh, to be frank. No, he's, he seems to be arguing that uh, if this was a crime, if he was trying to cover up these uh, this illegal campaign finance uh, payoffs right before the election that he wouldn't have uh, included a check, a paper trail along with it. Somehow, I guess he would have just handed Michael Cohen $35,000 a month because in Because he's a great, nice guy? No, that he would have, if it was a crime, he would have given him $35,000 oh. a month in satchels of cash, basically, rather than writing a check for it. So he wrote a check for it. Therefore, it's probably not a crime. Uh, the claim is, of course, it was just a legal retainer. It was for legal services not to pay uh, Michael Cohen back for $130,000 that he took out in a, uh, a home loan from his own money, which is all very well documented. So that seems to be the only real defense of the president of note that I have seen over the past few days other than Michael Cohen is a liar. 
So, yeah, good luck with that, Senator. Um, And then there's uh, Donald Trump uh, sort of defending himself here. I usually don't like to read his insane tweets to you, but in the spirit of fairness, just to give you some idea of what the defense seems to be for his behavior, he unleashed a a series of unhinged tweets, as he always does, but... (laughs) Uh, particularly, he he tweeted, wow, just revealed that Michael Cohn wrote a, quote, love letter to Trump manuscript for a new book that he was pushing, written and submitted long after Charlottesville and Helsinki, his phony reasons for going rogue. Book is exact opposite of his fake testimony, which is which now is a lie. So he's gone from fake news to calling it a fake hearing. Now it's fake testimony. Um, the reference to Charlottesville, uh, where a race riot ended in a white supremacist murdering a protester, uh, after which Trump said there were very fine people on both sides, uh, and to Helsinki, where Trump seemed to roll over to uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. Michael Cohn had cited those as reasons that he had begun to, I guess, lose faith in uh, Donald Trump as a, uh, well, as a human being. Trump went on to say, uh, Congress must demand the transcript of Michael Cohen's new book given to publishers a short time ago. Your heads will spin when you see the lies, misrepresentations, and contradictions against his Thursday testimony. I think it was actually Wednesday, but he was out of the country, so he's uh, time zones. Anyway, uh, he says, like a different person, he is totally discredited. He continued then, oh, I see. Now that the two-year Russian collusion case has fallen apart, there was no collusion except by crooked Hillary and the Democrats. They say, gee, I have an idea. Let's look at Trump's finances and every deal he has ever done. Let's follow discredited Michael Cohen and the fraudulent dishonest statements he made on Wednesday. No way. It's time to stop this corrupt and illegally brought witch hunt. Time to start looking at the other side where real crimes were committed. Republicans have been abused long enough. Must end now. Yes, it is unhinged. Sorry to read it to you, but you need to know how unhinged your president now is. Um, So there you go. In the interest of fairness, this seems to be the defense against Cohn's testimony at this time, um, where Cohn had cited at least five different felony crimes by Donald Trump, both before and after he took office. All right. We'll have some uh, closing thoughts on the uh, Cohen testimony at the end of the program, but let's take a quick break. And um, it's not just uh, Republicans who are uh, (laughs) having problems here. Democrats are sort of turning on themselves as well. We'll talk about that with Emily Atkin right after this on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Whoa. 
Yes, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You may have seen a version of a video that went viral over the past week or so showing 85-year-old Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California meeting with a couple of dozen kids from the Sunrise Movement in her office out here in San Francisco. The uh, Sunrise Movement has been one of the loudest and longest, uh, really, citizen groups, advocate voices calling for a Green New Deal along the lines of the one recently introduced by freshman Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and veteran Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts. Their resolution is a blueprint for a 10-year wartime-like mobilization to transition the U.S. economy and power grid to 100% carbon neutral by 2030, with a massive investment in infrastructure and jobs to support it, along with a focus on helping vulnerable communities and workers such as coal miners survive and indeed thrive in that transition while cleaning up decades of legacy pollution. Now, the meeting with the Sunrise Movement children in Feinstein's office did not go particularly well for Feinstein, who said that she has her own version of a Green New Deal that the uh, kids there wanted her to uh, agree to uh, to vote for. Um, but she said she's got her own version of a Green New Deal, and I'm sorry to say she seemed to talk down to the children. Now, to be fair, the video that went viral that most of you may have seen, if you did see this uh, over the past week, uh, that video was somewhat unfairly edited, I think, by the Sunrise Movement folks. I don't believe that they did it on purpose, but the 10-minute uh, or so meeting looked much worse in that two-minute clip than it was uh, in actuality, I think, uh, at least upon my own review of the full video. In the full video, Feinstein looked better, but frankly, still not great. Uh, here's the first unedited uh, few minutes of that encounter between Senator Dianne Feinstein and the, frankly, very smart kids of many different ages from the Sunrise Movement. Hi. Hi. Hello. Oh, tell me where you're from. Uh, well, we're from all, all over. over. Yeah. All, yeah. Okay. All, 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 all right, and tell me what you're doing here. Uh, we are trying to ask you to vote yes on the Green New Deal. Okay, I'll tell you what. We have our own Green New Deal piece of legislation. Why don't you call back, see if they can fax one out make a copy for each person. Well, we're trying, okay. to, we're trying to promote the Green New Deal. The, well, there are the reasons why I can't, because there's no way to pay for it. Yes, there is. Yes, That's we have tons of money, money going to the military. Half of our, a lot of ours is going to the military. Well, I, I understand that. The United States government does a lot of things with the money, and they're important things. And you just can't go in and say, okay, we're going to take hundreds of millions from here and hundreds of millions from there. It doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. But of course well, our But you can have, I don't agree with what that resolution says. That's part of it. And we have done our, can you get a copy of the resolution? Yeah, it's coming. Senator, yeah. we need it's a coming. plan that, And that. let me just finish. I will give you a copy of what we do support. And you can take a look at it, and if you've got a problem with it, you can let me know. But I think it has a much better chance of passing 
than what this is because there is no way to pay for what it gets done, so nothing will happen. So you, you be the judge. You take a look at it. We're going to get you But we have come coffee. to a point where our earth is dying, literally, and it is going to be a pricey and ambitious plan that is needed to deal with the magnitude of that issue. And so we're here asking you to vote yes on the resolution for the Green New Deal because that is the only That resolution that will not pass the Senate. And you can take that back to whoever sent you here. Why do you tell them? Because it doesn't have a single Republican vote. And the Republicans control the United States Senate. So we are a minority on the Democratic side. So the key to good legislation is to tailor something that you write so that it can pass and you can get a step ahead. I've been doing this, I've been in the Senate for over a quarter of a century and I know what can pass and I know what can't pass. And the key is to get something passed that puts us on the right foot and we're able to deal with the problem that's happening instead of something that won't get passed. But why does that stop you from voting yes? Because yeah. even if they vote, you can still well, vote can yes still and it won't try. pass and we can draft a new plan. Well, I may do that. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first few minutes of uh, Diane Feinstein's uh, meeting with a bunch of kids from the Sunrise Movement about a week or so ago. Um, and, and it gives you just some idea of what's going on on the Democratic side of the climate change battle, while on the Republican denialist side. Uh, on Sunday, the Washington Post reported that the Trump administration is assembling a panel of fringe industry-funded scientists who represent the Trump administration's most forceful effort to date to challenge the scientific consensus that greenhouse gas emissions are helping drive global warming and that the world could face dire consequences unless countries curb their carbon output over the next few decades. But as environmental reporter Emily Atkin at the New Republic observes this past week following the viral release of that Feinstein encounter with terrified children, uh, as Trump denies climate change, Democrats delay. Feinstein, writes Atkin, is not a climate villain on par with Donald Trump. She has a 90% lifetime rating from the League of Conservation Voters, while Trump is withdrawing the U.S. from the Paris Agreement and his EPA is methodically attempting to undo everything it accomplished under President Barack Obama. But... Emily writes, the uh, California senator, and here's where we get to the controversial part from uh, from Emily, uh, the California senator is the bigger threat to the left's goal of slowing climate change before it's too late. That in a headline, uh, in, in an article headlined, Dianne Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Trump over at the New Republic. Well, that charge may have raised a few eyebrows and angered a few Dems in the social media world over this uh, past week. Here to explain herself is Emily Atkin, the environmental reporter from The New Republic. Emily, welcome back to the broadcast. 
Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, you're in such trouble. Uh, bef- oh, <laughs> before we before we get to uh, the Feinstein matter, however, and 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 hopefully uh, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her own comments about the Green New Deal, which you argue in a separate article may have been misinterpreted somewhat by some uh, Democratic Washington State Governor Jay Inslee jumped into the 2020 nomination race on Friday uh, with the with his intention of seeking the nomination based on a focus on taking on climate change. I wanted to get your quick thoughts on that. And uh, and yes, I guess none of the other candidates currently running have have yet to make climate their top priority. So maybe that is an in here for uh, for the uh, for, for Jay Inslee, even as he's not particularly well known across the country yet. I mean, as a human being and a character, I don't really see Jay Inslee as a very exciting nominee for the Democratic Party. And I think that for any climate policy to get through and Mm -hmm. for Democrats to really win, they need an exciting nominee. Um, And Bernie Sanders does have a full climate plan uh, just from, you know, from when he was running last year. So Mm -hmm. he's a bit ahead on that. But, yeah, nobody else is running on climate change. Um, I don't see how he's going to be really an exciting, mobilizing figure. He's he's an old white dude, and he's not even as weird or quirky as Bernie Sanders, right? So, so also I, I an like old white dude, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think what I do think is that it is great to have somebody running on climate change mm-hmm. who is going to push the rest of the field to be knowledgeable about this. Because really, in every other presidential cycle, Democratic nominees or or candidates to be the nominee have never really been pushed Mm -hmm. on specific questions about climate change. They don't even get climate change questions during debates. So to really have somebody who's knowledgeable about what we need to do to really make a dent in this huge problem that we literally don't have that much time to solve... Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's going to really help move the conversation forward and help drive the urgency. So I'm I'm excited to I'm excited about what he's doing. I think that him as figures maybe. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Maybe he's maybe he's going to be great. Well, uh, but no, I I agree. I think it's good to have someone pushing this issue because you also have a lot of uh, a lot of these uh, nominee uh, candidates, I should say, who have already signed on board for the Green New Deal. But to have someone who's raison d'etre, if you will, uh, is actually trying to push climate change, no matter what Inslee's record may have been. And I've heard from folks saying his record in Washington state is not that fantastic. But I, I, I agree that I think uh, having him in here, if only to push everyone else, is a good idea. Now, he mentioned, Emily, in his uh, in an interview with uh, AP that he believes, uh, quote, climate change is a unifying issue. He described uh, described it as a moral necessity and an economic opportunity, which clearly it is, at least for everyone but the fossil fuel industrialists anyway. But um, as I noted in, in our uh, previous segment, the... Um, the elements of the recently released Green New Deal polls very, very well, uh, like 80 percent among Americans of all parties. They do. It is a unifying issue, it seems, among the public. But among elected Democrats on Capitol Hill, there is a divide, as we see in that video with Diane Feinstein. Even if most of the currently declared presidential candidates have said that they support the Green New Deal, there does seem to be a split 
at least through part of the party. So how is your article, which argues that uh, Dianne Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Trump, how do you explain that? How is she a bigger threat to the climate than Donald Trump? Yeah, what I mean, <laughs> what I mean is that she is a bigger threat to our one opportunity that we have mm-hmm. to, to make a dent in climate change and make a significant dent. I think that people don't grasp that when the IPCC, the International Body of Scientists at uh, mm-hmm. the UN, says that we have 12 years to get this stuff accomplished, um, that's, that's not a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so, and we have two parties in charge right now. This is the reality of our system. Uh, one of them is not going to do anything, and we can never depend on them to do anything to try and solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's fully what I believe, and I think any realist believes that. Um, our only hope to get this done is through the Democrats. Um, and Diane Feinstein has a preoccupation at this moment with what's passable with Republicans in charge, and she's focusing on this in a moment when they're not going to pass anything either way because it because Republicans are in charge. Right now is the time to mobilize on the idea of the most aggressive, most exciting climate plan possible and use that to take control of the House and the Senate and the presidency in 2020 and then get some and then you talk about what is passable because nothing is going to be passable right now. Um, mm-hmm. And also the, the Democrats are not going to take power in 2020 uh, unless they run on really bold, exciting messages. I think that we've seen that pragmatism, uh, it, it's just a, a bad strategy for winning elections, just running on saying, well, we're not going to be as bad as Donald Trump. I think we saw in the midterms that that doesn't work. Um, I think that young people understand that they only have a few years left to implement bold solutions necessary. And right now you have some of the most powerful Democrats speaking actively against bold solutions, not even willing to vote for a resolution that doesn't even, I mean, sorry, it doesn't even mean anything. You know, if Dianne Feinstein supported this resolution, it doesn't mean that she has, she's voting for the legislation. Um, really, she's just kind of crapping on the only the only plan that's been put forward that has the emissions reduction goals and the realistic, like, the plan that could meet them necessary that scientists say could actually do something. The plan that she put forward is it it wouldn't do anything. Yeah. Did you, did you, uh, she she kept referring to that several times in, in that video to her own green new deal plan, though, frankly, I couldn't tell from that video if she, uh, if she even knew what was in it. She said, well, we got a a different plan. It's, it's way better. Uh, so you, her, her plan is, uh, at least the draft that I saw is about four pages long. Um, I presume you had time to look at it. How does her plan differ, her green new deal differ from, uh, AOC's uh, green new deal as you see it? As I see it, as I read it, um, the climate change resolution put forward by Diane Feinstein is mostly a reinstatement of the status quo during the Obama administration. So putting back all of the regulations uh, for, the, for the climate that Trump is attempting and has repealed, mm-hmm. um, getting back into the Paris Climate Agreement, um, putting forth you know another uh, another big 
money mobilization and new technologies mm-hmm. and things like that. It doesn't call for any of the big social uh, reforms that Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution calls for. The idea of the Green New Deal social policies like universal health care, um, free education, et cetera, et cetera, is that um, you have to take some of the, these market-based mechanisms out of society so that we're not overproducing anymore. You know, mm. like we're only producing as much as we need because it's in government control. Mm. Um, and then it also doesn't include the big economic stimulus package that the Green New Deal is. You know, the Green New Deal is supposed to provide a federal job guarantee and, you know, government-led funding mm-hmm. of new renewable energy jobs and technologies and then, you know, employing people in it. It's, it's the New Deal, but green. Um, and it just it doesn't have that big transformation, the big societal transformation within it. Um, it's sort of just a larger like status quo plus 10%. But Feinstein's argument was that uh, there's no way to pay for it in uh, the uh, Ocasio-Cortez plan, whereas she, A, knows how to pay for it, and B, can get Republicans on board. I guess the mechanism for payment in, in her... Uh, plan is basically a carbon tax. Is that how you read it? <laughs> That's all I saw. In I there. don't know how she proposes we pay for climate. Ch- uh, the amount of climate change that's going to happen under her plan is what we can't pay for. Mm-hmm. I think people don't understand when they talk about cost in terms of a plan. Um, is that co- doing something costs less than not doing something? Um, we have the ability to borrow money for from the future, and so. Uh, I don't see how we can't pay for for anything. But that's well, and 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 the other uh, argument that she was offering there is that the uh, AOC plan would uh, that it has no Republican support, and that that plan can't possibly get Republican support. Uh, which may or may not be true, as I said, since it's uh, you know wildly popular across all demographics, uh, getting more than eighty percent approval. But we spoke with David Roberts a couple weeks ago on on uh, on this show on the day that the resolution was first released. He argues, as you do, Emily, that uh, Republican officials at this point are not going to come on board with anything that Democrats produce that actually deals with the climate crisis. So. Why not just go for it? And uh, as AOC and, and Markey do here. Um, but if if that's the case, if Republicans won't come on board and the idea is to just go for it as aggressively as possible, they're still for the time being anyway. Republicans are needed in the Senate to pass anything. And then we've got a, an insane climate denier uh, clown in the White House. So really, what is the path forward here, Emily? I mean, I think I laid it out sort of a, a bit earlier. The path forward is to support something exciting. Demonstrate that you know, as a Democrat, what it means when you say climate change is the biggest crisis of our time, which is what Diane Feinstein said, but, but doesn't demonstrate it with the type of plan that she put forward. Yes, potentially it's more achievable mm-hmm. right now, but it's not. Nothing is going to be achievable until 2020. I, I, I don't think that, I, I think that as, as long as Trump is in the White House, nothing of this scale is achievable. So it does, I think the path forward right now is to demonstrate to voters that 
you truly understand the magnitude of this crisis, that you're willing to support societal change to get there, excite people, make them hopeful for the future, instead of saying, you know, like, well, we're going to support this lukewarm thing that's not going to do anything. Um, and then people are just drawn back into apathy, mm. you know? Um, yeah. And then once, and then once we have, and once we have people in power who are willing to do this, then we talk about like how we're going to craft this legislation to get the votes to pass it. I wish, you know, for my potential future children's sake that we had something aggressive that we could pass right now, because I've been covering climate change for five years and, you know, I, I know that the stakes are really high, and they're a lot higher than Diane Feinstein makes it out to be yeah. when she's talking to these kids. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, I, I wish that they could pass something now, but I, I don't personally, like, I don't think that what they would pass now would do anything. So even, like, if, really even if you compromise, even if you compromise to get those Republican votes, what you end up with is not enough to uh, to meet the moment. Essentially, um, I, I should also because right, this is a glo- this is a global problem, right? Yeah. So even the hugest thing we do yeah. is still a fight. Yeah, you know? yeah. Even if we do everything in this country, we still have to deal with the rest of the world. Although I should say the Green New Deal does talk about working with um, you know other countries to sort of spread the. Uh, as Nancy Pelosi sort of smeared it, the green dream uh, across the globe, uh, which brings me to this uh, other point here. We've got just a minute or two left, Emily. Uh, she has uh, Pelosi has taken uh, some flack for her less than full throated support for the Green New Deal. As I said, she somewhat dismissively called it the green dream. But you argue um, in another article at The New Republic this week that um Pelosi's take on climate action may have been somewhat misinterpreted, uh, at least as far as what you read into her recent interview with Rolling Stone. Yeah, I think that I don't think that Nancy Pelosi fully supports the Green New Deal or gets the Green New Deal. I I feel Mm -hmm. that she from her comments that, you know, she is dismissive of it. However, I do think that as Dave Roberts said in one of his pieces uh, mm-hmm. who you talked to last week mm-hmm. um when he when she does this and uh, engages with aoc in this way it builds more tension and more attention towards the green new deal mm. and the public is starting to pay attention dave roberts thinks that that's intentional um i'm not sure about that but <laughs> what i what i paid attention to most in her rolling stone interview was how often she said this needs public support for it to go through. You know, she mm-hmm. basically kept saying, I can't do this on my own. She said, if I were, she said, I used to be an activist. Mm-hmm. I was carrying single payer signs before you all were born. And if I were still an activist, I'd probably be sitting outside of my own office with these signs right now. But I'm not. I'm a leader in Congress. And my job is to get things through that are passable. And in order for this to be passable, we need more public support for it. She's basically doing what um, FDR may or may not have said. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I like I. I like it. I want to do it. Now make me do it. Right, exactly, which Obama used to uh, cite all the time, basically saying, force me to do it. Uh, and, and Pelosi did tell Rolling Stone, 
I understand what uh, that to be an advocate, you are persistent, dissatisfied, and relentless. I've been there. I understand it. You have that responsibility as an advocate. She did seem to be saying, force me to do it, uh, essentially. Um, but, you know, I, I'm also, you know, the fact is that the Green New Deal, the Green Dream is wildly popular, at least right now among the public. So the problem doesn't seem to be the public. It seems to be the elected officials. And I'm not sure how much uh, noise and protesting and support is actually going to change some of those uh, folks. Emily, I've got... I, I disagree. You disagree? Honestly, well, I disagree. I was just going to add that yeah. I think that I think that it's about priority. A lot of people support things, but a lot of people don't prioritize them. We've mm. had most people in this country believe climate change is real for years and years and years now, um, but they don't prioritize it. And so, yeah, 80% of people might support the Green New Deal, but do 80% of people prioritize it? Are they going to vote on it? No. And that's what that's what protesting and mobilization will do. Mm. Uh, lastly, uh, here, uh, many Democrats um, seem, and I'm talking about voters at this point, uh, sort of seem dead set on eating their own. And I, I hope uh, that activists continue to push this, obviously, as the very real emergency that I believe that it is. Um, and um and and that they should push it as we discussed you know insley uh making this a defining issue for democrats i was very happy to see feinstein by the way challenged by a more progressive democrat in her 2018 election i'm fine with that uh my concern or it's not even because it's a question emily does does action on climate risk becoming another issue like the ones that we saw defied the party in 2016? Because I'm not sure that we, uh, meaning the country and the world, not the party, but that we can survive another such divide in 2020. I'm wondering if Democrats are capable of, you know, pushing forcefully and unapologetically without sort of turning on each other with the, you know, burn it all down, destroy your enemies, sort of toxic tactics that they seem to have adopted from, you know, the Karl Rove, George W. Bush years, uh, which is now metastasized to both Republicans and Democrats alike. Do Democrats have the ability to make this the fight that it needs to be without eating themselves alive? Yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about the Democratic Party's survival. I'm worried about the planet's survival mm -hmm. for future generations. Um, I don't think it's as big of a deal uh, if the, the party can survive. Um, and honestly, this debate is that's happening right now, uh, this, you characterize it as eating their own. I characterize it as the most productive debate on climate policy I've seen in five years of doing this. It is really the first time I've seen constructive arguments over it. That It's the first time I've covered a policy climate debate that isn't stupid, to be honest. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's the first time that I feel like people are starting to understand the stakes here. And so if, the, if it seems like the Democrats are eating each other alive over this, the Democrats are the only ones engaging uh, on, on the biggest issue of our time. And I think that that's you know, it's too late. It's a, it's a little too late, but, you know, um, well, I guess it's not too, too late. 
you know what I'm saying? I, no, so I, I do. I'm just not concerned about it. Good. Well, I, I do. But, I, of course, I'm not the one who wrote the article headlined, Dianne Feinstein is a bigger climate threat than Donald okay. Trump. So <laughs> I didn't write that headline. I know. I know you didn't. <laughs> I know. I won't I won't hold it against you too much. Uh, and I, I agree. I did write everything else in the <laughs> I, I No, and I agree. And, by the way, I, I don't think, or at least I hope, that Democrats don't eat themselves alive over this, even while they push it in a way they have never pushed it before. Uh, I I just I just hope it doesn't uh, get to that point, but we'll see, uh, and we'll uh, call you back to talk about it when it happens. Emily Emily Atkin, you can find her work at NewRepublic.com, and you should follow her on the Twitters, where she is. Oh, it's hard to spell. Uh, <laughs> M or we? That's E M O R we W E E. Uh, thank you, Emory. Glad you, uh, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast again. Thank you for having me. It was fun. You bet. So uh, I want to come back to uh, take a quick break here. We'll come back with uh, some thoughts. We've got some actually breaking news uh, fall, uh, falling out from uh, Michael Cohen's testimony. So we'll drag you back there. Uh, but as you were, uh, I know, chomping at the bit to I, have you know, a point I had, here. I just had this yeah. one thought that I want to add in here that I think that this public protest, this public pressure campaign that the Sunrise Movement is conducting is actually working because Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, mm-hmm. the Republican Senate Majority Leader, had originally said he wanted to have a vote on the Green New Deal immediately in the Senate but after protests at his office, he has now pushed off that vote until August. Yeah, I know. When I heard him say he wanted to do that, I was like, are you sure, Mitch? Yeah, are I, you sure you want to have a vote on that? So Exactly. So we will find uh, how split the caucus is. Um, well, I was going to say soon enough, but maybe not until August. All right. Quick break. And we're back with some uh, closing thoughts from a remarkable week. Right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Some uh, breaking news from NBC reporting that House Democrats are now preparing a case to request Donald Trump's tax returns. They're crafting a request to send to the IRS and say they will take, quote, all necessary steps to obtain the president's returns. This is something that they had uh, said previously they planned to do, but they were going to wait till after the Mueller report. Now they uh, say that the testimony from Michael Cohen has changed that calculation and they are going to speed up this request Uh, following uh, Cohn's claims that uh, Donald Trump would inflate or deflate his actual worth when he was, uh, you know, trying to get loans from banks or dealing with insurance companies, etc. So that is about to happen. And just to drag you back in to the Michael Cohn hearings uh, for a moment here, just to sort of put a coda for now on on that hearing 
incredible hearing on Wednesday and this past remarkable week, there were some closing comments that I think are worth hearing if you didn't make it to the bitter end of that Cohn hearing on Wednesday. Cohn himself was allowed to make uh, some closing remarks, and he included a thought that others have argued, sort of a chilling note, that if Trump loses in 2020, he says there will never be a peaceful transition of power. Now, I don't know if I agree with that, but I know that some are very concerned about exactly that. I'm frankly more concerned about Donald Trump winning in 2020, to be frank, uh, by hook or as likely by crook. But Michael Cohen knows Trump after some 10 years of working with him personally about as well as anyone. So I think his comments here, chilling or otherwise, are worth hearing. My loyalty to Mr. Trump has cost me everything. My family's happiness, friendships, my law license, my company, my livelihood, my honor, my reputation, and soon my freedom. And I will not sit back, say nothing, and allow him to do the same to the country. Indeed, given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. In closing, I'd like to say directly to the president, we honor our veterans even in the rain. You tell the truth even when it doesn't aggrandize you. You respect the law and our incredible law enforcement agents. You don't villainize them. You don't disparage generals, gold star families, prisoners of war, and other heroes who had the courage to fight for this country. You don't attack the media and those who question what you don't like or what you don't want them to say. And you take responsibility for your own dirty deeds. You don't use your power of your bully pulpit to destroy the credibility of those who speak out against you. You don't separate families from one another or demonize those looking to America for a better life. You don't vilify people at the expense of our allies. And finally, you don't shut down the government before Christmas and New Year's just to simply appease your base. This behavior is churlish, it denigrates the office of the president, and it's simply un-American. And it's not you. So to those who support the president and his rhetoric, and his rhetoric, as I once did. I pray the country doesn't make the same mistakes that I have made or pay the heavy price that my family and I are paying. And I thank you very much for this additional time, Chairman. Michael Cohen at the end of his uh, open testimony before the U.S. House Oversight Committee on Wednesday in what I think will... Well, we'll see, but uh, may potentially turn out to be just landmark testimony and a turning point in this entire bizarre saga. I would hope so, but like you said, we'll see. Also a warning there about what happens if Donald Trump loses in 2020, but we will see. And lastly, lastly, uh, one righteous rant, as you called it, Desi Doyen, (laughs) from uh, House Oversight and Reform Committee Chair Democratic Congressman Elijah Cummings of Maryland at the very bitter end of the Michael Cohen hearing uh, in response, perhaps in in no small part to that comment about a peaceful transition in 2020 and the need, as he put it, to get back to normal in this country. Yes, please, Mr. Chairman. It sounds to me like you want to make sure 
that our democracy stays intact. When I, the one meeting I had with President Trump, I said to him, the greatest gift that you and I, Mr. President, can give to our children is making sure that we give them a democracy that is intact. A not democracy better than the one that we came upon. And I'm hoping that the things you said today will help us begin to get back there. When we're dancing with the angels, the question will be asked, in 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Did we stand on the sidelines and say nothing? Did we play games? And I'm tired of these statements saying, they come, people come in here and say, oh, oh, this is the first hearing. It is not the first hearing. The first hearing was with regard to prescription drugs. Remember, a little girl, a, a lady said there, Miss Wortham, her daughter died because she could not get $333 a month in insulin. That was our first hearing. Second hearing, HR1, voting rights, corruption in government. Come on now. We can do more than one thing. And we have got to get back to normal. With that, this meeting is adjourned. Chairman Elijah Cummings and his uh, righteous rant at the end of Michael Cohen's testimony in the House Oversight Committee. When we are dancing with the angels, they will ask, what did you do in 2019? I know what we did, uh, and it was exhausting. Uh, but we will, yes. as he said, we'll be back to normal uh, in time for our next thrilling broadcast. I hope you will join us when that happens. Until then, my thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest, Emily Atkin of The New Republican, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always our honor and pleasure. Thank you. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download all of them for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. I read everything that comes in, and I try to apply, uh, reply to as many as I can as well. You can also find, follow, and share what we do on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. And finally, as ever, my great thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate, uh, especially those who sign up for monthly uh, subscriptions of any amount you like. The Bradcast is free. It's free to all. We try to get it out as widely, as broadly as possible over your public airwaves. Um, but we do ask, if you don't mind, uh, to help us out a little bit. What did you do in 2019? Bradblog.com slash donate because we're all in this mess together all right that's it until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world